0: This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while.
1: I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing.
2: Being bored is much better than being in intensive care.
1: Welcome to the Party Room. I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast and Patricia can't join us this morning. In her absence, though, is longtime friend of this podcast and of mine and host of Insiders, David Spears. Hi, David. Hi,
0: Fran. Uh, Great always to be back in the Party Room and plenty to discuss this week, of course, what was behind that rather extraordinary uh, Prime Ministerial press conference on Tuesday and um, why that too required a further apology a little later in the day. Uh, we'll get to all of that with uh, Triple J Hacks Shalala Medora, our guest, a little later on.
1: Indeed, there is so much has occurred this week. I don't think we're going to fit it all in. But, you know, there were more allegations of rape by politicians, denied but alleged. More allegations of senior politicians slut-shaming Brittany Higgins, denied but alleged. The list goes on and on and on, which is... Horrific, really, to would have to say. But for me, David, there were three pivotal moments or events this week in this long and sordid saga. First, there was this on Monday morning when Phil Gachens, the head of Prime Minister and Cabinet, appeared at Senate Estimates.
2: On the 9th of March, because of the Commissioner's advice, I emailed the Prime Minister's office staff to tell them that I would be not completing the documentation And at that same time, I also told the Prime Minister uh, of that.
1: Then there was this moment on Network 10 on Monday night. Here a man arrogantly points to the desk of a female Liberal MP, then performs a solo sex act on it. And then on Tuesday morning, the Prime Minister emerged. These events
0: have triggered right across this building and indeed right across the country. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap
1: for their entire lives. Three key moments, I think, David, but very much linked because they go so directly to the pressure building on the Prime Minister to actually respond in a real And significant way to this kind of crowd of allegations of sexual assault and harassment going on, not to respond in a a politically management way, which has just been adding to the fury of so many women around the country, I think, but as an issue of grave and urgent importance. Now, we had Phil Gaetjens there, the PM&C secretary, tell estimates that he'd paused his inquiry into who knew what when in the Prime Minister's own office about the Brittany Higgins rape allegation. He did so, he told estimates on the request of the Federal Police Commissioner. As we heard there, he then told the Prime Minister himself that he'd stopped the inquiry. And yet, David, just last week, the Prime Minister told Parliament he didn't know when he'd get the Gaitchen's report, which Mm. might be technically right, but was not a full and frank answer. So that brought a tonne of political pressure down on the Prime Minister from Labor, who went to town on it that night. We got the Peter Van Olsselen story, we heard a bit of there on 10 News, with those horrific allegations of sexual misconduct going again directly into offices of Liberal members of Parliament in Parliament House. There was no political management of that, because you know, 10 had video proof. And then the next morning, the Prime Minister came out in that press conference to acknowledge his misstep so far, to tell women he'd heard and understood their concerns, he was going to do something about it. This should have been a turning point in the politics of this for the Prime Minister. But my thoughts, David, are that first event in estimates led very directly to the Prime Minister having to come out in front of the Parliament House to prove he's not into the politics of this, but really into the the heart of it for women.
0: Yeah, I think it's really fascinating, Fran, the way you've put together there all that's been happening in just this, well, really the space of a few days of this week. I mean, in any normal week, this would be simply unbelievable, right, that you've got... Mm. The issues around the head of the Prime Minister's department pausing an inquiry effectively into when he, whether anyone in the PM's office has lied about their knowledge of a rape allegation and, and, and pausing it because the AFP are busy actually investigating the rape allegation itself. Mm. The PM accused, as you say, of uh, failing to up, be upfront with Parliament about whether he knew this inquiry was on hold or not. You've got the terrible allegations of what this government staffer did on a female MP's desk. On top of all that, the the claims about Erica Betts, which we'll get to uh, as well. I mean, in any normal week, that would be extraordinary, and it is. But sadly, I think, in the context of the past four or five weeks, the past month or so, this is just another week at the office. It spiralled out of control uh, for the Prime Minister. He tried to reset things and grab a hold of them again at that press conference Tuesday, but wasn't able to. So this remains a real crisis for the government. And I know we're focused here on the politics. It's a much, much bigger issue than that, of course, the issue of um, mistreatment, misconduct, disrespect towards women. Uh, But for the government, and if we look at this politically, this is a pivotal moment uh, for them and it's it's not being handled well.
1: Let's talk about that press conference for a moment before we get to the impact um, politically on long-term of mm. these events. That press conference was unusual in itself because the Prime Minister had been wanting to just talk about these issues as though he's dealing with them and move on. But this, he came out, he had to talk about the floods, but then he dealt very directly with this. He made a, a heartfelt plea to the women of Australia to tell them that he'd been listening, he'd heard, uh, he understood that it was the issue for all women. I mean, even listening to some of that, I felt a bit uh, that I found that a bit irksome because some of the things he was saying he'd learned were some things that men and women have known and should know very well by now. But w- what did you think of that press conference itself? Look,
0: in terms of this uh, attempt at a reset, uh, look, I-, I thought Scott Morrison's sentiment uh, in in the opening speech was actually uh, quite quite good, quite right. Uh, there was contrition. About some of his missteps in handling all of this uh, over recent weeks, there was an emphasis on listening uh, to show that he gets it. And I think you know that that line that uh, women have had to put up with this crap for too long, look, mm. I, I get it. I think I think that was the right sort of tone. Um I agree there were elements, there were problems in some of the language. Malcolm Turnbull points out that he felt Scott Morrison was talking too much about his own, um you know experience and and uh, you know when he teared up it was
1: about himself rather than women have been subjected to all of this uh, yeah and we'll talk about more yeah. of this with Shalila but it it wasn't long after he made that comment about crap that he got to the importance of his own daughters and his own wife and yeah. his own widowed mother to how he you know d- learns about these things and thinks about these things and uh, to me it, that was veering off course badly then
0: yeah and look and there weren't and this is fundamental uh, there weren't any answers put forward you know the words mm. were, were fine, most of them, but the actions are what are are needed now. And we haven't... We're told that they'll come soon and presumably that, you know, we can talk more about this. It'll come to more funding for women's shelters, domestic Mm. violence, perhaps, uh, you know, some national leadership on consent, education and so on. But I think he can't muck around for too long on this. I think we really need to see action from the government, a response to the Kate Jenkins report from a year ago as well, the Respect at Work Mm. report. All of that needs to happen fairly soon. But of course... All of this press conference was then, and the attempt at a reset was sunk by that confrontation with Sky's Andrew Clonell uh, in the press conference as well, where he, you know, he really weaponised a, a harassment allegation um, that he'd heard of, uh, presumably in the Canberra bubble, and, and used this to throw it back uh, at Andrew Clonell, who'd asked him about his own leadership uh, and whether, in the corporate world, that would be in question, it, it must have touched a raw nerve because mm. he suggested that there had been this uh, HR complaint in a women's toilet, which was factually incorrect. in News limited. Yeah, that's right. Not to mention entirely improper for the Prime Minister in a you know public stage like that, a nationally televised press conference to start weaponising uh, something that's meant to be a confidential matter. It was you know he had to apologise for it later, but I think that moment uh, really undid a lot of what he was trying to do.
1: It undid it in a couple of terms. I was I was listening to this press conference. I was not watching it. But the change of tone from the Prime Minister, even before he got to the actual citing of that allegation, which, as you say, completely improper, really, given the confidentiality, the trust we're trying to build for women in coming forward, just the tone from the Prime Minister was in itself um, sort of menacing. And when he said something like, to Andrew Clinell, he said something like, people in glass houses, or you can be on your pedestal, but be careful... Mm. I mean, in my car where I was listening, that sounded almost like a threat. (laughs) Well, it's pretty hard to read it any other way. Mm. Um, And look,
0: let's put aside the fact that it was factually incorrect and and that's what he apologised for. Uh, As I say, I just thought it was completely the wrong message to send Mm. uh, for women uh, and I guess men as well who are wondering whether to come forward with a complaint who wanted to be dealt with confidentially, confidentially, discreetly uh, and to be respected in that process to have it then an alleged complaint, at least, being brought up in this way uh, by the Prime Minister
1: it just sent completely the wrong message. Yeah, it did. Um, we'll talk about all of this, I think, with Shalala with in a moment, but another major question is whether the Attorney-General Christian Porter and the mm. Defence Minister Linda Reynolds will have their jobs when they are next back in Parliament, which will be Budget Week. Uh, there's plenty of news reports around suggesting the Prime Minister's on the verge of a reshuffle that would see both of them removed from their ministries. Is this going to happen, David, do you think, and, and how is it going to happen?
0: It, it looks like it will happen, and uh, this is as uh, as I I love always hearing uh, on the uh, Party Room podcast, by the time you listen to this, uh, (laughs)
1: we're recording this on a Thursday morning. That's
0: right. Uh, Look, all the speculation is that Christian Porter and Linda Reynolds will be shuffled out of their respective roles. Now, whether they remain in the ministry, I think is the fascinating element and the difficult Mm. part of this for the Prime Minister. The, The thinking is that Porter might retain his industrial relations portfolio and that Linda Reynolds might go to a different portfolio. If they stay in the ministry, look, there's a couple of things to, to point out here, Fran. The PM we know, through all the various ministerial scandals in his time as Prime Minister, is most reluctant to sack anyone. He hates doing it. He sees loyalty as a two-way street. He will back his ministers even when they're in, up to their neck in scandal and expects that loyalty in return. He He thinks that's a virtue within the party to be loyal like that. Uh, However, if he keeps them in his ministry, he's going to have to defend that. He's going to have to explain why he still has confidence for them to be sitting around his cabinet table to be meeting the Ministerial Code of Conduct when they are going to be lightning rods still for Mm -hmm. all the unanswered questions, both Linda Reynolds and Christian Porter and their respective uh, issues. These issues aren't going away. So there are risks either way here for Scott Morrison.
1: But what's changed, David? I mean, is this simply a matter of political management? Because as clear as day, as you've just spelled it out there, it will be a political, ongoing political... Uh, negative for the government having those two sitting there on the front bench. I mean, Labor's already indicated that every moment they get in question time they will be raising points of conflict of interest if not worse with for Christian Porter as one, for one. Um, is it just political management? Because what happened to I remember when Christian Porter gave that press conference, he was very clear about mm. the fact he wouldn't step aside. He said, you know, you can't have resignation by allegation. The Prime Minister clearly backed him up on that, talked about the rule of law and how important it was to Adam Democracy. So, what's shifted here? Yeah, you're right. Is it is it anything that that has been uncovered in the inquiry by the sister general, or is it just political management? Well,
0: I think you know, in part, yes, this is political management uh, clearly. But I, I think the fact that Porter has now launched this defamation case against uh, the ABC and Louise Milligan that in a way provides the convenient um, way through this because it Mm. does inevitably raise these conflict of interest issues. And even as the Prime Minister has noted uh, in in an interview with Sabra Lane this morning uh, on AM, the perception of a conflict of interest as well, and that's in the ministerial standard. So that is um, the reason as to why here we shifted out of the Attorney-General's role altogether, it would seem. Linda Reynolds is a bit more problematic. What reason do you give for shifting her out and can you dump uh, a woman from cabinet at the moment. That's complicated and arguably Mm -hmm. not a great idea. But could you argue the health reasons that uh, she's been on leave for warrant uh, lighter duties, some sort of ministerial role that's not quite as you know, involved as the Defence Ministry. She would have to be happy with it, though, and, and present as such. So these are complicated issues. Um, but you're right to highlight the fact that Porter and Morrison, when this all broke uh, the rape allegation against the Attorney-General, were adamant that this would set completely the wrong standard mm. to have resignation as a result of an allegation.
1: So much to talk about. So much going on. I think it's a perfect moment to bring in our guest, don't you?
0: Absolutely. Let's bring in Shalila. <laughs>
1: Shalila Medora, political reporter with Hack on Triple J. Welcome to the party room.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Hey, Shalila. Now, look, we've talked a little bit about that press conference on Tuesday. It was such an extraordinary moment. In many ways, you know, a pivotal moment for for Scott Morrison's prime ministership. There there were the tears, and that's drawn a lot of focus. Perhaps we should just have a listen to that. Criticise me, if you like, for speaking about my daughters, but they are the centre of my life. My wife is the centre of my life. My mother, my widowed mother, is the centre of my life. They motivate me every day on this issue. Shalala, what did did you think? There's always a lot of cynicism when a politician tears up. um, It looked very genuine, the emotion, but what did you make of all that?
2: I think it was the speech, at least the first half of that speech before we got to questions, was the speech that Scott Morrison really should have given six weeks ago. I mean, Mm. it it seems a little bit strange at this point to acknowledge that women feel unsafe in their workplace. Mm. Um, So it's like, well, you've had six weeks to kind of come to this conclusion. You've had dozens of of complaints of people feeling, saying they feel unsafe in Parliament House. This was the speech he really should have given and acknowledged a while ago. I think what really needed to happen after that speech was that he needed to demonstrate that he was listening. Um, He was saying he was listening in in the first part of that where, you know, he talked about the toll it had taken and the fact that uh, he acknowledged he'd made some missteps, but then immediately went on to proving that he really kind of maybe wasn't listening. Mm. So I feel like he's really done himself a disservice in the second half of that particular speech that he gave. The first half was meant to be a reset, um, acknowledging perhaps some of the past failures in terms of how he's dealt with this issue, and then immediately goes and undoes everything in the question and answer part of that particular press conference.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it did seem to me in some ways, a welcome statement of the bleeding obvious, but a statement of the bleeding obvious that should have happened Ooh. a few weeks ago. And what we're all waiting for now is proof, and that's going to come in action. Now, the PM said in that press conference that, you know, today was not the day to list future steps. I actually think it was. I think we, we should have listed a few by now. <laughs> but what do I you agree. think? What are the concrete actions that the Prime Minister is promising he's going to take that he could be and should be taking right now? And what are they likely to announce in the near future?
2: I guess it depends on who the audience for that particular speech was. You know, is it the women who are complaining? Because if it's the women who have given all these stories and made all these disclosures in public, well, we know we feel unsafe. We know that there are issues. You don't need to recap them for us. We're telling you they happen. I do think there needed to be a little bit more of a focus on like, okay, I've heard you and now this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to make sure that I'm appropriately listening, how I'm going to make sure this is a safe work Place for you. I do feel like there's sort of like recapping of a litany of, of disasters in terms of Parliament House. Not all of them under this government, you know. Obviously, I want to make that clear. But that was sort of a mm. little bit by the by. Um, in terms so of so, what, what should it be promising? To... What should they be doing yeah. right now? Uh, well, he's currently made some pretty con- or uh, suggested he's made some pretty um, concrete steps in terms of, of human relations or um, HR sort of policy. That's welcome and it's quite surprising those haven't been in place things until like the now like and so on. things like the hotline but also having an hr working group yeah. for the coalition mm-hmm. to work out actually maybe there's things that we're not doing right here and workplace Since, culture again, training obvious.
1: and all those sorts of things so Induction that's all very into Parliament good house
2: that 's all very it's good all, for that
1: workplace, but that's
2: just that 's just all very workplace. good for that exactly, and I think that 's the danger here is he could release a whole bunch of concrete steps of Parliament house, but that 's not going to allay the fears of the you know um, people that are listening from outside of this particular place so I think um, really interestingly, in that speech, he seemed to signal a real openness to quotas mm. which um, is a real signal, I think, from the government. And it's it, it's something that perhaps the private sector's moved on a little bit quicker than this place. So I think that's a really interesting acknowledgement that perhaps quotas are something that they would what look just, at I mean, here. just on
0: that, I mean, the, the language that he used, though, was that, uh, what did he say? My colleagues have always known that I've been um, open mm. to the idea of... Well, let's just rewind the tape a little. Uh, In 2018, right, he was just weeks into the job as Prime Minister. He said to uh, Lee Sales on 7.30, the quotas were never something I have supported. I don't Mm. think quotas are a way of removing obstacles. The following year, he gave a somewhat infamous speech at an International Women's Day event where he said, we want to see women rise, but we don't want to see women rise only on the basis of others doing worse. So, Mm. you know, his record on quotas, it's not clear on the public record that he has been open Not to at them all. until now what?
2: Not at all. And I think, you know, again, this is a a, a real um, criticism of, of the Prime Minister. If he can just acknowledge that maybe he's moved on from then, pe- mm. I think people would take it more on face value to be like, you know I've what, my in mind. the past, yeah. yeah, in the past, I was a little bit iffy yeah. on quotas. But now I've come to realise through maybe people telling me that this is the best way forward, women in my own party telling me they want this, that would be much more authentic, I think, for people who were listening to that. And, and going, being Because open, you know what?
0: He's being open to quotas, sort of a half halfway there step. It's kind of a, well, a bet each way to use one of the Prime well, Minister's favourite sledges.
1: Yeah, that's it. I mean, we heard on AM with Sabra, the Prime Minister, say very emphatically, if the divisions are, you know, wondering where he stands on this, well, you know, he's not going to stand in their way. He's very clear on that. He's open to it. But... As you say, David, what's open to it mean? I mean, I'm sick You're of either these half or against it, Right? You're half, think quotes
0: are a good idea. Yeah, right? I mean, we don't, don't
1: want hints. Yeah. We want action. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's difficult yeah. one within the party, and and you know, yes, there are so many things he does need to do that, Shalala, you've listed there, and things that are happening and will come. But this is one that's really politically difficult for him because we know there are plenty in the government and in the Liberal Party base and the membership who have spent a lifetime opposing the idea of quotas, including some women. Uh, You know, and I've spoken to a number of MPs since he made that comment Tuesday. One MP said to me, look, this is just a a Prime Minister desperately throwing anything now because he's got Mm. nothing left to try and get himself out of this problem, throwing away our principles. So he's going to face this sort of resistance. Another I spoke to said, oh, what, they're they're going to pre-select a a woman for my seat? So there's some self-interest there as well. He's going to have to confront all that, but it's a fight He, he should take on. He should be... You know, showing the leadership to you know have this fight with his party to, to deliver some outcome because the numbers are the numbers are staggering, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've got them here. The Liberal Party has twenty three percent women Ooh. at the moment in yeah. uh, in in federal parliament. Labor has forty seven percent. Quotas work. Quotas yeah. work, and they
1: weren't they easy were. in Labor, and that was a hard fight. I was there back in the Keating years when that fight was going on within the 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 Labor Party generally, and it was a hard fought um battle but they work but you know quotas is one thing and the liberal party i think should definitely move on that and that's clearly the message that is being put out there but what about policy measures for the nation right now why didn't the prime minister stand this week in that courtyard and say we are going to hold a national summit for women on violence against women in June this year. We are going to fund that. We've been listening to Angela Lynch and others from the Women's Legal Services who have been asking that as part of the way forward. We'll do that under as part of our National Action Plan for Women. Why doesn't he say, apart from just saying we're working on Kate Jenkins' respected Work report, which they've had for more than a year, which has 55 recommendations, why don't they say, you know, one of those recommendations is more funding for Women's Legal Services, and you will see that in the May budget. You know, there's few concrete measures they could do quite easily that would be real action and you know, I hate to put it in political terms, but would give him some cover.
2: It seems also, you know, just listening to those things, these sort of like public measures that you can do, this real like fronting accountability. I'm going to sit here with um, women who have come together for a national summit. It seems like he'd prefer to do things that are a little bit behind the scenes. And and whether or not that's a deliberate strategy or not, it gives people cover to say, oh, he doesn't, he doesn't want to do anything publicly. He doesn't want to take any accountability. He doesn't want to like be the person who gets criticised on a public sort of sphere. And it just, I don't know, I don't know if that's a deliberate strategy, but that's definitely how it comes across to Look, a lot of people. It's also
0: interesting. I mean, yes, the PM, I think is right to say this is bigger than um, just what happens in the building in Parliament House. It's its beyond any one party. This is a society cultural uh, wide issue. But again, this week, you know, we, we keep seeing these issues in that building, right? Whether it was mm. Karen Andrews, a minister in the government, talking about her you know, feeling of disadvantage because she wasn't, you know, uh, willing to go drinking with the boys and so on, and is therefore left out and disadvantaged professionally because of that. Or Lydia Thorpe, the Green senator, who's only been there five minutes—what is it, six months or so—talking mm. about how she feels unsafe in the building. The fact that men, uh, which she's talking, I think about a government uh, MP yes. or senator, senator, yeah, mm. um, she's
1: not just men, senators, <laughs> yeah, who yeah. had,
0: uh, well. What been hitting on her was that the was that the sentiment that she was expressing that they were. I think,
1: I think she said two men in the business of parliament at times had put their arms around her, which was not appropriate, obviously in your workplace. And then others, she said one sort of follows her as she leaves the chamber, and one had asked her out repeatedly for dinner, and she's creeped out by this. That's pretty clear. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess
2: the the kind of problem of um, you know MPs and senators are have entire discretion over who they have in their inner circle in terms of employment as well. So so it's not just a problem of, you know, the MPs and senators themselves might be engaging in this behaviour, but they have complete oversight in who's in their teams and no one else can really get any say into that. So even if you have a problem with someone else who works in one of those offices, there's not really much you can do except take it to the person at the top there. And I think that's one of the things I think she alluded to in her speech as well, that there was like no accountability apart from the person who's at the top of the sort of the food chain.
0: Yeah, and look, these issues just, you know, every day uh, we see something new. And, you know, I know, Fran, you were talking to the New South Wales Liberal MP, Catherine Cusack, about uh, her concerns in the New South Wales division of the party. We've got new rape allegations coming out of the New South Wales Parliament as well. It just just feels like this is n- never ending now.
2: It feels like we're, we should be reaching the end of the road with this, but every day brings up new mm. allegations. It just shows you the breadth of the problem.
1: And I think that shows you why so many women from such a broad um, cross-section of this society were at those rallies, those March for Justice, because they're kind of is no into it. I mean, look at the number of schoolgirls or or recent schoolgirls who responded to that call-out from Shiloh Contos mm. about, you know, have you suffered sexual harassment or sexual assault at school? You know, within two weeks, I think, there was 3,000 first-hand uh, testimonials of how, mm. you, you 5, know, girls... 5,000 now. 5,000 mm. now. I mean, mm. you know, it is widespread and that's why it keeps coming. And the point is now, what can the Prime Minister do to persuade the women of Australia that this government is going to do something about it. Obviously, this government can't change that in a moment, can't change um, this culture, which is a dangerous culture for women um, at the moment, but it can start and it can lead. Um, Shalila, just before we go, I think there is another important issue for us to talk about this week, because on this weekend, on Sunday, JobKeeper comes to an end. This was a really important element of the government's response to the pandemic. It served a terrific purpose. It was hugely expensive. There was rorting within it, but nevertheless, it was was um, a a really good policy, I think, that the government rolled out. It's coming to an end. The government says these cheques can't go on forever. But Treasury suggests now around 100,000 to 150,000 people who come off JobKeeper this weekend could lose employment altogether. So they'll be added to the job queues. That's a pretty big number, isn't it?
2: Yeah, the jobs figures next month are going to be really interesting to see. One of the questions that I had about JobKeeper, obviously the government has made announcements um, about certain sectors. So the tourism sector, aviation, was one that was mentioned a few weeks ago. Today it's announced um, additional funding for the arts sector, which has been really really hard hit and unlike other sectors there's no really end in sight in terms of when you know live music festivals all of that kind of stuff will start up again so that was um, definitely a question I had prior to today about whether or not there would be extra funding for a couple of those industries but um, universities is one that we really need to keep an eye out on Mm. Um, already I think it was something like one in ten university jobs have already been lost um, since the pandemic. Again, no international students anywhere in sight. There's a a little bit of a heavy lifting being done by domestic students. We know that there are, I think, something like 11,000 additional enrolments, but that's not going to make up that funding shortfall in any way. So there's definite sectors that I think are going to be hardest hit here, and they're the ones we should be looking to in terms of maybe additional support or or, or how the government's going to really look at particular, really granular kind of industries. Mm,
0: Which might come in the budget or the lead up to the budget. I think you're Mm. right, Shalila, to focus on those. Uh, specific sectors that are still going to be doing it tough. I think in the macro sense, though where JobKeeper has stepped down over the last six months or so in in phases, there's been a lot of concern uh, about what impact that would have, Labor demanding that it be kept at at the rate it was at and so on. I I think we've had surprises on the upside, though, when it comes to uh, the employment uh, situation. You know, unemployment has kept falling Mm. surprisingly well. This is the big test, though. It's at 5.8 now. It will go back up. I don't think there's any doubt about that. If it goes up to 6.2, 6.3 or higher then I think the government is in real trouble uh, again. And if it stays up there above 6% for more than a few months, then, yeah, we're in, um, we're in a bit of trouble for the government as well.
2: And yeah. underemployment but- is one to, for us to keep a look at because JobSeek has really artificially inflated a lot of the underemployment figures, particularly for young people, because of that blanket rate that it's had. So that's one to really, really look at.
1: All right, Shalila, so much work to be done still. Thank you so much for joining Thanks, us Shalala. on The Party Room. You're great. Thank you so much.
0: Questions without notice, the Leader of the Opposition.
2: Thank you, and and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker.
1: Not as pleased as we are, those bells are ringing, which means it's time for question time here on the Party Room podcast. And this week's question comes from David in Melbourne. David says... Given the media coverage over recent weeks regarding sexual abuse and the March for Justice rallies and the subsequent drop in the government's poll ratings, will the Prime Minister put off calling the next election until next year?
0: Gosh, I'll have a crack at that one, uh, Fran. I think that's a pretty easy one. I don't see any chance of an election happening this year. And in fairness, you know, I'm not sure how likely it ever was. But, uh, you know, I'm always reluctant to make predictions on when elections will be because really only one person makes this call. and That's the Prime Minister. But boy, oh boy, I don't know about you, Fran, but I cannot see any chance of an election happening this year now.
1: No, absolutely zero. I mean, for a start, the you know, the vaccine rollout, we're not even all going to be vaccinated if things go on time uh, until after October. And, you know, that's had a pretty rocky start, the vaccination rollout. So I wouldn't be betting on us all getting vaccinated this year. And I think that's one thing. The Prime Minister wouldn't want any mess around that before he goes to the polls. That's the, the big thing in their armoury, really, isn't it, for trying to get re-elected. So that timing tells us a lot, I think. And they just need to be getting things back on track. And there's no sign of that happening. Right now, the budget is usually a time for a big reset, but that doesn't give us much time if we were looking at a September election. So I'm pretty sure London to a brick, really, next year for me.
0: There you go and they'll, you know, we can come back to this tape uh, at <laughs> some it. point later in the year.
1: That's it. I'm sure that'll happen now I've said it. Well, that's it from us. Send your questions in because we do love getting them. You can tweet us using the hashtag ThePartyRoom or email your questions to Room at abc.net.au and you can also follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. That's it for The Party Room this week. Thanks for having me, Fran. David, it's been an absolute delight, can I say, and I'm sure we will do it again, but PK will be back next week.
0: Bye, friend. See you. Busy. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.